0: No greater promise than that. Thank you. The Blankenship Duet. We have been talking for a few weeks here about the church, the, 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 the body of Christ as Jesus' bride, Jesus' wife, we've said. And we've talked about what a privilege and an undeserved blessing it is to be that. Um. I think we can easily forget just how much God, uh, the groom, our groom, loves us. Uh, And we can also forget how this great love of his for us is designed to to purify and to transform the the character of his bride, the church, um, receiving And living in the love of the groom winds up making us more beautiful. Uh, Communicating all of that, the the depth and the power of God's love for us, his creation. I I think that's one reason God chose the bride and groom metaphor for our relationship with him. We've looked at several New Testament passages where that appears. Uh, Revelation 19, again in 21, Ephesians 5. uh, It it appears also in 2 Corinthians 11. Last week, we found it kind of in a parable form in Matthew 25. Um, But what we see today, though, is that this whole idea of God as groom and his people as bride is nothing new. Uh, it, It wasn't just some invention of Jesus. Uh, The idea and the image of God as husband to his people appears first, I think, in Exodus 19. At the foot of Mount Sinai, God presented there all that he had done for this nation of Israel over those years. And there in verse 4, Exodus 19, God said to Moses, he said, Tell the people of Israel, you have seen what I did to Egypt, how I carried you on eagles' wings and brought you to myself. So now, if you will keep my covenant, you will be my treasured possession out of all nations. And it's right there that Israel first said to God, I do. Or or maybe we do. We will. We will. And that's where the wedding ceremony begins. Uh, You could read about it, uh, if you want, later in the second half of Exodus 19. The people consecrate themselves. And then you can read about how the Lord came upon the mountain and the whole place shook. And the mountain itself smoked. And the music... Trumpets grew louder and louder and louder. It was a wedding. And, and it was quite the wedding. Uh, now, I have been to some memorable weddings. I've conducted a few. I've seen weddings where one of the bridal party passed out and fell down. Uh, I've seen weddings where the groom tripped and nearly fell down. One wedding... I dropped the rings as I prayed over them. <laughs> uh, at one wedding, the bride had second thoughts just before walking down the aisle. There was one where a bridesmaid had, let's say, a wardrobe malfunction. Um, one where just about everybody melted due to heat and, and on and on. Those, those were memorable to me, but compared to this wedding at Mount Sinai, those were completely forgettable okay this was a wedding that you would think the people involved would never ever forget and yet they did didn't they they did the fact is before moses even came down from the mountain they forgot And they went to Aaron, the priest, and they said to him, essentially, they said this, Hey, we know that we just made this commitment to this God of yours. We know that we just got married. But we're asking you now if you would help us commit adultery here. Uh, Will you help us cheat? We know that we just said, I do, to this God who shook the mountain, Not all that long ago, but you know, he hasn't done much for us lately. And so we're moving on to someone else and we want you to help us. And that, as you know, what led to the golden calf, the creation of an idol, which then led to God's burning anger against the people of Israel, which led to Moses pleading for their lives, which led to God's relenting. Which then led to Moses burning anger against Israel. Which led to Aaron's lying about how the golden calf that they were worshiping came to be. You remember what he said? He said, it just leaped out of the fire. Oh yeah, it leaped out of the fire. Which then led to punishment and on and on and on. You see, the nation of Israel, the bride, forgot about their marriage. Forgot about her marriage. And by that, by forgetting, I mean she just dismissed it. She chose to ignore it. And that's really the story of Israel. All through her existence, she did it over and over and over again. Century after century. Which explains, you see, all the language in the Old Testament that you find about Israel playing the harlot. You see that again and again. Though Israel at Sinai was married to Yahweh, the God of Abraham, Isaac, and Jacob, though she had committed herself to him, she spiritually prostituted herself over and over and over again. She followed foreign gods. She ran after them, willingly, trusting them to care for her, all the while ignoring this husband that she had at home. About 40 passages in the Old Testament talk about Israel playing the harlot, cheating on her husband again and again. In fact, here's how bad it was. You know, the word Baal, that is not an intrinsically bad word. Uh, it's, in its noun form, it translates husband. And its verb form, Baal, it, it means married. So you see, early on, God called himself. Baal, the Baal of Israel, the husband of Israel. God himself is also Baal. He is married to Israel. But Israel cheated on God so much, the word Baal essentially lost its neutral meaning and it came to be used as a synonym for idols. For all the gods with whom Israel Had affairs. That's why the word Baal morphs into this intrinsically negative word, and Israel even begins using a different word altogether for husband. Israel was committed, married, but over and over again, she despised it, she ignored it, she dismissed that, and she forgot her wedding and her promise and her husband. But God did not. God did not forget. He did not forget Israel. He did not forget that he was married. He did not forget his wife. And that's what brings us to the prophet Hosea. If you haven't turned there, you're welcome to. uh, Hosea chapter 2, the passage uh, that Mark read for us. Because what we see here in Hosea, above all else, is the fact that in spite of all that Israel did and did not do, God's full intention remains reconciliation with his wayward wife. God still wants Israel back. This this depth of love, this firm of a commitment, this willingness to forgive, this extent of patience, this is our God. Yahweh is this, and he's always been this. So you see why you see it in his son, Jesus, beyond all else that is here in this passage. And there's a lot in in that passage. uh, What we need to grasp first is the depth of God's desire for reconciliation. And we need to realize all that he is willing to do to make it happen. From that day to today, from from wayward Israel to every wayward individual around us today, short of committing sin himself, it seems that there's nothing God will not do in order to bring about reconciliation. That's how much he loves Israel, and that's how much he loves you, and that's how much he loves me and his church gathered today. That's why even giving his son, Jesus, to die on a cross was not too much for him to give. So please, please don't ever think that you are unloved. When the enemy tries to get into your mind and tempt you to think that nobody loves you, remember, God loves you. God loves you. Don't ever think that you are worthless. You are worth life itself to God. Don't ever think that you are unwanted. Because God wants you desperately. Desperately. And not to use or to abuse or to just to toy with or to deprive He wants you to cherish and to restore, to make lovely and beautiful and whole. God will do all he can do to repair this marriage, to reconcile people to himself. He he will go to extreme measures. In fact, as we see here in, in Hosea, in verse 15 there, God God says about sinful, wayward Israel. God says, I am now going to allure her. My translation says the word there that's translated allure, it's usually translated in a bad sense. It usually is translated like entice or even seduce. And we tend to think negatively about those terms. But here, this is all positive. It literally means to speak to the heart. That's what God was going to do. And that's exactly what his plan is. He's enticing. He's trying to speak to the heart of these wayward people to bring them back to himself, trying to convince them to love him again. Now, now just think of that. What an incredible stooping of the almighty God to, to win again the hearts of his people can you, can you get your head around that? That is what God is communicating here. That's what he's interested in doing. And how, how does he do it? How does he plan to do it? By taking them to the wilderness, he says. To a dry, barren, lonely place. Now, we read that and we say, you know, that's not very romantic. <laughs> if I were God, I'd take her to a nicer place. But that's why God is God and we are not, you see. God takes his wayward bride to the wilderness for a very good reason. Where in her past did Israel grow closest to God? Where did she come to really trust him? Really trust him. Where was she able to see clearly his his great love for her? Where was she convinced that he would protect her and that he would Provide for her? Where did he show her all of the evidence for all that? You see, that didn't happen in places of plenty, did it? It happened most profoundly in times of trouble, and specifically, it happened in the 40 years in the wilderness. Back when there was only God and Israel, you know, back in their dating days. Back when life was simple and and where Israel had only him upon whom to rely. All that while, God faithfully provided for them. He protected them day after day. And they grew in those years to trust him and to love him and to appreciate him more and more and more. That's why God says he's going to take them back to the wilderness. He wants to put them again in a place where life was stark but but simple so he could show them again his great love for them, so they could see him, so there might be room in their lives for, for him. You see, the deepest, the most intimate times between God and his bride, they never occurred during Israel's years of power and prosperity, did they? Like during the days of Solomon. You know, when they had plenty and, and when they were the envy of all the nations around them, they lived in luxury, they lived in peace. No, <laughs> you know what happened during those days. The deepest, most intimate times between God and his bride came in the wilderness times where there was scarcity and insecurity And and poverty, back where their enemies threatened them, back when they had nothing to call their own, back when it was God and Israel against the world, to quote the old Helen Reddy song, you know. Um, Back there, God's love and his presence, you could see it easily. You know, that may well be why God hardly ever leads people in scripture, he hardly ever leads people anywhere by the most direct route. Because trust is built in the journey. And the harder the journey, the more God provides. And the more God provides, the more trust is established. It was in the hardest parts of Israel's journey that really shaped their most positive relationship with him. And you know, really, that's still true today. Uh, In the times of trouble, that's when commitment and trust is really forged between a couple. The busyness, the complexities of life, even brought about by blessing and, and prosperity, those things bring distractions to relationships and they often just drive people apart. But when all you have is each other, That's where relationships are made. And that's what God is hoping will happen in Israel's heart. He's going to move his people back to a wilderness place so they might see again how he can provide for them. He's going to prove himself to them again that they might trust him and and him alone. Uh, That they might see that no idol, no Baal... Is going to feed them, clothe them, speak lovingly to them. You know, Israel rejected Yahweh because she thought the bales would supply her her needs. She thought the grass was greener on the other side, you know, just like people sometimes believe today. But God's hope here is that in the desert, she'll remember that the bales of the world have no real power. You know, no bale can ever love like Yahweh no no Baal can ever do what God can do God hopes to convince her of this verse 15 there he says there I will give her back her vineyards and I will make even the valley of Acre a door of hope that's significant now valleys in general are not considered places of hope you know Uh, Mountaintops, that's where the hope is. That's where the vision is. You know, valleys are places of despair. You walk through the valley of the shadow of death. That was true for Israel in the valley of Achor, particularly because that's where she discovered that the fellow Achan, one of her armies, he kept some of the plunder from Jericho. He kept it for himself and he was found out. Because God was displeased and he was stoned there. Achor was a very low point in an otherwise glorious victory. The victory over Jericho. Uh, Achor was a, val- uh, a valley <laughs> in every sense of the word. But God says that he's going to turn even that valley into a place of hope. Out of even the valleys... Out of the desert places, God says in verse 15 there, Israel, my bride will respond as in the days of her youth, as in the day that she came up out of Egypt, she will again call me her husband. And so the covenant will be renewed and all that was wrong in the world will be made right. And and there was plenty that was wrong. Because that's what sin does. Separation from God. That's what it does. It corrupts such that everything suffers. Even the animals. God names those things. The plants, animals, the relationships between peoples and nations. You see, wherever God is pushed out, where the husband is rejected, everything becomes broken. Sooner or later, everything becomes broken and tense and difficult. That's what happened to Israel as she rejected and left and cheated on her husband over and over and over again, things just got worse and worse and worse. But if she would just return to him, if she'd be reconciled, then he'd fix it all. (laughs) He'd fix it all. That's what he wanted for Israel. And he still wants that today. Uh, Through Jesus God's desire and offer of marriage and reconciliation. That all still exists. That's all still out there for us to receive. And man, how our world needs to receive it. Look what's happening in our world today. Violence in the cities, large and small. Distrust between people and governments. Hatred between races, this this deepening, dangerous anger that is seething in people. The, 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 The dismissing and then disposing of human life. This mad desire that more and more people seem to have to escape reality through any means possible. The highest good in our day, in our culture has become blatant self-indulgence and it's leading to utter chaos and despair and it's all because we've forgotten our god we have forgotten who he created us to be his bride he wants so badly to restore that bride groom relationship in our day so that that all can be made whole and all can be made right again. But, but in order to do that, to, to allure us back to himself, he may well need to take us to the wilderness uh, so that we can see our need for him and so that we can see that his way is really the only way that works. Um, he may well have to take us to the wilderness to show us that the bales of our day, what are they? Money. Status, titles, possessions, sexual freedom, (laughs) self-indulgence. That's the thing. He may have to take us to the wilderness to show us that none of those things can ever bring the reconciliation and the peace that we need. Uh, None of that can ever take the place of God. None of it can provide for our true good like Yahweh can. Personally, I believe he's only beginning to take our nation through the wilderness. He's only beginning to bring us to the bottom of ourselves. We're nowhere near that yet as a people. Um, but never forget that his goal at it all is to be reconciled. And listen, he does this whole thing. He did it with Israel as a nation. I think he's done it with nations through the ages. Peoples, cultures, tribes. Uh, He does it with persons too. He does it with persons too. If you're in the wilderness today, if you're in some desert, dry place, um, there's different reasons that you may be there. Uh, You may be there simply because of the, the, the general effects of sin in our world. It may be nothing that you have done. Uh, it just happens to good people in our broken world sometimes. You find yourself there. And, and we're tempted when we're there to get mad. You know, we're, we're tempted to even get mad at God and just to condemn this experience. Um, I think the better thing to do might be to look humbly to him, to God. And just to say something like, you know, God, I realize that that I may be here just because of the overwhelming sin that exists in this world. And if that's the case, then then would you provide for me and would you protect me and would you deliver me uh, from this in your way, in your time? I give myself to you in that way. On the other hand... You know, just as God led Israel to the wilderness, he may have led you to where you are. And if that's the case, then I think the better prayer to pray might be something like, Lord, if if you've put me here, if you've put me here in this dry place, like you put Israel in the wilderness, would you help me to learn whatever... I have to learn. Uh, Will you show me the bales? Would you show me the, the powerless idols that I have put in my life? And would you help me to become again your faithful, trusting, beautiful bride? You see, the day is coming. When all nature, all heavens and earth are going to be reconciled to him. That day is on its way. But you know, more important to him than all of that, God wants reconciliation with you and with me and with every single person on earth. He wants his bride He wants this marriage back. He's taken every initiative he can to make that happen. But he leaves the decision to us. Will you put away any other veil in your life? And will you say yes to your groom, your true groom, without reservation? That's what he wants to know today. That's what he wants to know. Father, we see how you dealt with Israel. And there's, there's not one of us here that have not been in a similar place at one point or another in our lives. Where you are calling us to yourself and you're doing everything you can to make that call clear and strong. You've tried to allure us. You've tried to draw us to yourself. Lord, we want to be as close to you as we can be. And so I pray, we pray, if there is anything in our lives, if there's any bail, (laughs) any false provider, false husband, idol, that exists between us. Lord, would you take us to the driest place you need to take us to point that out to us so that we might be whole and holy with you, holy with you. Lord, thank you for your willingness to marry people like us, to have a covenant relationship, And thank you for the cost you paid to make that possible. Lord, help us to hear the voice of your spirit as you speak to us this day. In Jesus' name we pray. Amen.